0: This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com excuse to start your free trial membership.
1: This is Writing Excuses, Season 7, Episode 7, Historical Fantasy.
2: Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart.
1: I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. I'm Howard. Alrighty, historical fantasy. I want to begin this off by a definition. We have talked about alternate history before. Um, I view historical fantasy as a very different side of the same coin. Where alternate history is more science fiction based. You are changing one little thing in history and trying to extrapolate. Historical fantasy is more, let's say, whimsical. This is where we are going back and we are adding a magical element, whether it's hidden world or unhidden world, to our own world that is not explained through science, but really through fantastical reasoning.
3: And I think one of the the reasons to draw that distinction is that when you're doing alternate history, with both of them, you do have to think through how it affects society. But there is a point with with historical fantasy where if you look at it too closely, it will often fall apart because really the, the point is we like this period in history. We want to have magic with it. Yep. But if magic had actually existed through the thousands of years leading up to this point. <laughs>
4: there would have been no Napoleon.
1: Yeah. yeah.
3: Things yeah. would look very different.
1: Well this this is a baseline of fantasy.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, if we go and we look at Tolkien realistically, I mean come on. There can be no dragons. Dragons are physiologically impossible unless you add magic, which is breaking the laws of conservation of energy. Yeah, fantasy. We, we we do come up with rationale. We do try to add some science to it, um, and give some rules and things like this. But at the end of the day, if you look at it too closely, it breaks down, and that is a very big difference between alternate history and historical fantasy. Yes. Um, let's give some examples of historical fantasy for our our listeners who, um, just in case they're not familiar with it.
3: Uh, well, one example is um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. Yes,
1: very good example.
3: Um, and this is basically, uh, you know, what would the Regency look like with magic? And, and it's actually really well thought out. Yeah. Um, but again, if if magic had been around, right, it wouldn't look exactly mm. the way it does. But what yeah. what she does is she she says, okay, so this is Regency society. These are the customs. If magic existed in this society, how would that affect this society?
1: Right. Um, A lot of the steampunk movement fits into this pretty well. Yeah. Um, You could even take a step towards something like the prestige, um, which is adding a little bit of an actual magical element to historical events. Mm -hmm. Um, Your own book, Shades of Milk and Honey, quite a good book. Thank you. Um, And uh, things like this. Um, It's actually a pretty hip genre right now.
4: No, the distinction's not perfect, but I think that... uh... The original uh, Alexander Dumas Three Musketeers is sort of alternate history or historical fiction and the you know the later retellings of that are a little more you know alternate history and this most recent uh, abomination of a film which I loved <laughs> is historical fantasy because the technologies mm. and everything that's being introduced into the story are absolutely impossible but they're being introduced in that period of sensibilities right. and telling a story with Airships and rotary cannons.
1: Yeah, adding airships and rotary cannons to yeah would definitely be.
3: That's what I'm missing.
1: Yes, um, where are you do you have your your any airships
4: guns? in Shades of Milk and Honey?
3: No, no, no airships. Rotary, airships are fine. It's the rotary cannons. Yes, Jane Austen needs more rotary cannons. <laughs> mm.
2: <laughs> We're putting that on the cover of the DVD. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of the, there's uh, some more examples I want to mention. Mark Chadborn, who uh, wrote Silver Skull, which is basically a uh, kind of renaissance england james bond story with uh-huh. the Fay court invading and uh this guy has to fight them off um jasper kent has a fantastic kind of historical horror fantasy series yeah. about vampires uh fighting in uh russian civil war that's wonderful the first book is called 12 okay um so yeah there's a, it's a lot of it out there. okay
1: right now. let's Let's, let's ask this question before we, we dig into how to write it. Um, why is this so popular? Because this seems like a really, like I said, hip genre in a, in a really interesting way. It's, um, it's a movement. It's not really gone super huge yet, but I think we see a consistent appreciation for it in the genre right you now. You know, it's, a,
4: it's the same reason why a, uh, a remix mm-hmm. of an 80s song with, you know, 2010 sensibilities will appeal to many of us because you're taking something from our childhood in this case history class and you are now infusing it with something that we love genre fiction yeah the familiar and the strange it's yeah, it's the familiar familiar and the strange and in this place uh, well the past is a foreign country but because we took history classes we falsely doesn't matter believe that it is familiar to us you know oh yeah i know napoleon oh yeah i know the revolutionary war and now we're seeing these characters in a new light with, uh, you know, magical muskets or whatever, and, and it's fun.
1: It's the whole um, Pride and Prejudice with Zombies thing, except done in a non... Um,
2: D- done seriously. Done know?
1: seriously, and in, um, in done a way, straight. yeah, done straight. Um,
2: one thing that I think you can see a lot of, fantasy as a genre is really relatively young. Yeah, um, and this is kind of its adolescence, I think, what we're seeing right now. And there's a lot of ways, and people are just kind of stretching the boundaries of what fantasy is. We have urban fantasy, we have steampunk, that are all kinds of el- way different ways in which you can take fantasy and make it more familiar. Mm. Uh, whether you're adding technology to it, or a familiar setting, or uh, just setting it actually in Earth. And so I think it's a big part of it is just that it's it's another way in which people are playing with fantasy.
3: Yeah, and I think one of the other things that that draws people to it is that for a long time fantasy was defined by being medieval Europe. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is a way to explore different so- social customs, different um, different clothes. Uh, yeah. And and all of these aspects, and in a lot of ways, it's it's a way to do it without having to create the secondary world. Yeah. Um, it's difficult. I mean, there, there are aspects of historical fantasy that are easier than secondary world fantasy, and there are aspects that are harder. There is less world building that you have to do. However, um, the research <laughs> that you research. have to do yeah. is phenomenal because people know the history, yep. and anything that you don't explain as, you know, this is why this is different, they will call you on it. I have a yeah. book um, that we're, we're shopping where I, I had to burn a building down in the book because um president roosevelt visited it and for plot reasons i couldn't have the action taking place in that building the walls of the dressing rooms were cloth okay (laughs) and so the but if i just moved roosevelt to a different building yeah the roosevelt fans would just be like "Ah, no no in 1907 he went to the Ryman, and so i'm like all right
4: I'm burning just, the Ryman down. I'm burning the rhyming
3: down.
1: <laughs> that's a great solution. Uh, which, <laughs> which, I can't which
4: believe you we can do because you've done the research. I can't believe yeah. we forgot this title in our roll call. Uh, Larry Korea's Grim Noir Chronicles. Yeah. Our mm-hmm. historical fantasy, sort of pushing into the edge of urban fantasy because it's set in the twenties, and it's it's urban, but he's digging into history mm-hmm. in order to get all these pieces right.
3: And that's that's actually something to to take a look at. I'm glad you said that because. The difference between historical fantasy and urban fantasy in terms of the world building and the way you have to look at it, uh, the way it affects society, there is no difference. Yeah. These are basically the same thing. It's just that with... Time period. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's time period. That's the biggest difference.
2: I'm glad you mentioned uh, Larry's stuff because that's one of the other reasons I wanted to point out that why is historical fantasy becoming so popular? Because a lot of it's just really fun to screw with history. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the things that he'll do is he'll find old quotes. And uh, there's one quote, for example, and I, I can't remember exactly which historical figure it was, um, but it, it's just wildly racist. Uh-huh. And he, oh, he'll take some and them. he'll change them slightly so that you read the quote and you're like, oh, that's, you know, Theodore Roosevelt or whoever but slightly different because this is a magic world. And then right. there's other quotes like that that you can plug in and people will think they've been changed because here's this old famous role model. And no, he was just a racist.
1: It actually is. This Doing this is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a, I wrote a gear punk story. I've talked about it before on the um, on the podcast. I haven't released it yet because I haven't found the right place. But, you know, it's alternate our world historical fantasy. It's just a blast to play with some of these things, To mm-hmm. to, you know, to... What if, you know, magic were real and you combined it with, um, you know, the Anglican Church and some of these things? And, you know, um, it it becomes just a really fun mashup that you can do, taking from here and from there.
2: Well, and doing, you know, goofy things like uh, the Titanic didn't sink and now it's on its sixth voyage or whatever. Yeah, exactly. uh, Whether that's a throwaway gag or whether that's a great big element of your story, it's fun.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's um, let's stop for the book of the week. Um, Mary?
3: Yeah, I was going to pitch um, Temeraire by Naomi Novik. Uh, book one is called His Majesty's Dragon. Mm-hmm. And this is basically uh, what would the Napoleonic Wars have looked like if they had dragons? Um, mm-hmm. And this is one of those books that I was talking about that if you look at it too closely, society would probably not have developed exactly this way. But she, again, has thought it out very well. The dragons are integrated into society. And... One of the things that's exciting if you read or listen to the other books in the series is that she goes other places and looks at the way dragons have integrated with different societies so it's it's really nicely done do, yeah, we, I mean, get, do we
4: get Napoleon's uh, giant semaphore robots in that book
3: no because <laughs> you don't need those if you've got dragons because they can carry messages that's actually one of the things that she does nicely is play with the mail system
1: that name sounds familiar oh yeah she's one of the people that beat me for the Campbell award yeah uh, oh, uh, sorry um, about that.
2: yeah and we were all in the beginning when Brandon said what are some <laughs> examples of historical fantasy we were all trying very hard to bite our tongues and not say His Majesty's Dragon, because this series really is a wonderful example of it. It kind of reads like um, you know, Master and Commander, that kind of thing.
1: Howard, how can they download this wonderful book?
4: Head on out to audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. You can kick off a 14-day free trial membership and download His Majesty's Dragon by uh, Naomi Novik for free. And uh, help support the podcast while you're doing so.
1: Okay. Um, Let's talk about actually for the rest of the podcast, how to do this. How do you write historical fantasy? Mary, you're the best of us at it. Give us some um, hints.
3: Well, you start, you know, once you decide your period, um, Mm -hmm. if if you're doing magic, then you have to... You have to start working on your magic system, and part of that is looking at the culture and the society that you're in, Right. uh, which involves a lot of research. So the way I start off is um, I start off researching in two different modes. One is uh, fact, and the other is fiction. I start off reading historical fiction from the period. Okay, that's a good way. To get a feel for what people, and this is not fiction that people are writing now about the period, but people in the period were writing. Right.
1: Do you go to primary sources?
3: As much as I possibly can. Um, So primary sources are firsthand accounts, newspaper things, things from the actual period. Um, The other thing that I do is that I I try to read um, kind of overviews Yeah. uh, to kind of get a... a, a, This is what I call my my broad general research, and then I go back and I do spot research on specific areas. Okay. As I'm writing... If I'm suddenly like, oh, uh, when they do calling cards, do they turn the corner down when they make the actual call? Or? Right. Um, I don't research that in the moment. Right. So, so
1: after the fact, um, do you have any historical experts that you.
3: Um, I do. I joined, because I write in the Regency, so I joined the Oregon Regency Society. Uh-huh. And um, so I, I hit up some experts. Generally speaking, when I talk to an expert, um, I offer them an honorarium. Okay. Which is very important because they're putting in an investment of time, and usually uh-huh. a significant investment of time. Because I frequently need to go back to them, right? And ask them additional questions or ask them to read to spot for things that I didn't think to ask right. about.
1: Right. So you pay them an honorary maybe to read the whole book and give you, and yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, what What are uh, what are some other tips? Uh,
3: the other t- one of the other things is to look at your language. Okay. Um, you have to walk a fine line between using language that feels accurate for the period mm-hmm. and that is also understandable. Okay. So remembering that you are writing for modern readers. Yeah. So um, an example of something that we cut from Shades of Milk and Honey was I talked about crossed letters. Mm-hmm. And this is this very cool thing where you turn the letter sideways and continued writing across it. Right, yeah. But I had to cut it because n- no one knew what I was talking about. Yeah. Um, when I was working on Glamour and Glass, I went just a tiny bit insane. Um,
2: (laughs) just a tiny bit, just a
3: tiny bit insane. Um, so I, I took the complete works of Jane Austen, including her letters, Uh converted them into a word list, and I made that my spell check dictionary. Okay. And that flagged every word in my manuscript that Jane Austen did not use, which allowed me to, I told you I went a little insane. Wow. Um, (laughs) That's,
1: that's awesome. It's,
3: it's doesn't actually take as long as it sounds like it's going to. Wow. So it flies, no, that's really smart. And you can do this with any time mm-hmm. period. And it doesn't have to be single author. You know, I yeah. could, if I were writing something that was Victorian, I would grab, you know, three Victorian sources. Well, you know, f- I think Google has done this,
1: has compiled lists of um, how frequently they've words compared, were used. They've
3: compared, they've compared. Yeah. Compiled
4: uh, word list frequency things. Yeah. But the dictionary that Mary's got is something you'd have to build on your own. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so then I turn that into my spell check dictionary, flags everything, and then I use the Oxford Historical Thesaurus. Now, most libraries, not all of them, but most mm-hmm. libraries in the U.S. will allow you to access, use your library card right. to access the OED, um, and the online OED has this thesaurus that shows you synonyms in the order in which they appeared in the language. Mm-hmm which allows you to check to see whether or not a word has shifted. For instance, right. the word check has mm-hmm. shifted. It used to just mean um, stop. Right. And, yep. Yeah. And and it has...
1: That seems like it would be one of the toughest parts of getting this all right, which is one of the reasons that... It, one of the things that scared me off, honestly, of doing a lot of historical fantasy.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and words that shift, depending on, on the what you're writing. Words that yep. shift are actually often less of a problem,
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, but then you also have words that are totally appropriate for the period that just don't sound right. Joe yeah. Walton calls this the Tiffany problem. Mm-hmm. Tiffany is actually a name from the 1400s. Okay. Um, <laughs> you can't use it. You can't call yeah. it, yeah. yeah. Because I, it feels wrong. Yeah, I yeah. was writing um, a book in 1907 and I had a uh, rinky-dink and I went to look it up and um, and it kept seeing all of these resources that said, oh, boy, she really rinky-dinked him. And I'm like, okay, the word has obviously shifted. Yep. And it meant conned at the time. So I looked up the correct word for the period, and it was honky-tonk, which I can't use.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> See, this so, I've, I've encountered this same problem. I did a, a historical fantasy, uh, the Mormons and Monsters thing that I did. And the writing group, um, a lot of it is my own writing the dialogue wrong and a lot of it was the dialogue would just felt wrong even when it was right Mm -hmm. and so the readers would go through it and say no that can't possibly be how they actually talked and sometimes it was my own fault and other times it was accurate and still felt off because we just don't think about it yeah yep
3: One thing, um, when you are looking at the way people talked, be cautious of the fiction. Well, I said that I, I do go and I read the historic mm-hmm. fiction. If you can find uh, court transcripts, um, anything where people is, are recording dialogue, uh, it doesn't. It, they are hard to find, but if you can track them down, you frequently get a better sense of speech patterns. Like you know, people in Shakespeare's day did not speak. Did
1: in not the speak Amp- like Shakespeare. No. no. Yep. Mm-hmm. In fact, they thought. The other writers were like, this guy is a loon. Where does he come up with this? <laughs> he um, just
0: made those words up.
1: <laughs> all right. Um, we are actually way out of time. <clears throat> oh, sorry. Um, and so... I want to interject something real quick. Oh, go ahead. Uh,
4: we didn't touch on this, but based on the amount of work that Mary has described putting into this, I think your actual starting point is pick a period in history, a place in history about which you're already passionately interested okay. in. Yes. Because if you don't have that uh you got to find something else equally powerful to drag you through yeah. this enormous amount of uh of legwork you know, let's make that our done. writing
1: prompt just to say think about a story from the past or a historical period that you have been particularly interested at in, one point in time um interested in and go ahead and try and write a story set in that time do a little bit of research don't go crazy overboard do a little bit write a story and then start to fact-check yourself and see if this is a process you enjoy.
4: <laughs> Figure out if you love it. Yep. <laughs>
1: All right. This has been Right Excuses. You're out of uses. Now go right.
0: If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction.